When you hear the word gangster, one conjures up images of a sharply dressed Italian mafioso. Smoking expensive cigars and ruling a crew of enforcers with a sublime mixture of class and deadly intention. A man who commands respect on the streets from his community and enjoys a lavish lifestyle from the proceeds of various illegal rackets and extortions. He is bound by the rules of Amerta and a secret society that is the stuff of cinematic legend. But to an underprivileged Italian kid growing up in Bristol, Connecticut, a membership in La Cosa Nostra is about as likely as a membership into Harvard's fabled porcelain club. For this kid, being a gangster isn't about flashy cars, speakeasies, and beautiful women. It's about surviving one more day. Born into the streets of Bristol means being caught between gangs like the Latin Kings, Pump Nation, and the notorious and primarily African-American gang known as 20 Love. For this kid, it means forsaking the traditional memories of a nostalgic Italian neighborhood for a youth encumbered by crime, violent assaults, suicides, and murder. This is the legend of William Stax Pascarelli. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster era stuff. Time feuds of public enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This is what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing. This is my doom, 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 doom. So Bill Stacks, if people don't know him, he's got a uh, mob show. He interviews really all the big guys that are doing podcasts. Almost all of them know Stacks or have been on his show. It's a nice show. It is. He's got, he's had Luciano on. You know who he had uh, today? Scott Bernstein. Ah. Yeah. I just saw it flash up. I didn't get a chance to hear it yet, but. Uh, the researcher himself. The great Scott Bernstein. There's not a week goes by. I don't quote Scott on something. Like I said, he's had Luciano. Yeah. He's had, uh, of course, Hootie. He's had Bobby Luisi. Anybody you can think of, it's been on his show. And the cool thing is I actually knew Stacks before all that. When we first started coming out with a show, okay. uh, we hooked up on Instagram and uh, he, he was a fan of the show and said he was thinking about starting his own, going to get a studio and he knew some heavy hitters, he knew some mob guys and he was going to do video, you know. And uh, So anyway, I knew Stax before all this, watched him come up, you know what I mean? I watched the first couple, I watched him get better and better and uh, the really cool thing about him is he's kind of known for his video skills. He's going to have the titles across and the transitions and the backbeat music, uh, the crazy backgrounds and stuff, and uh, really technically capable, more so than most of the guys you see on it, you know, especially uh, for the budget he's working on and stuff. So uh, he doesn't talk about himself a lot, but he'd drop a little thing here or there. And by the time I got to talk to him on the phone a few times, he'd just start kind of <laughs> mentioning things about his life. And it would be like, what the hell, man? He'd tell me a story that would have me on the edge of my seat, literally. <laughs> I said, man, I, I want to do your story. He's like, yeah, I got some good ones. I'm like, man, in the five minute conversations we've had, nice. I've got enough that I know. So I was like, yeah, we, we could make this work, man. It's going to be an awesome show. So if you like his show, if you know who he is, I think you're going to be floored and moved by the life this guy's led and what an amazing accomplishment it is that he's gone from where he was to where yeah, he, he is now. And if you don't like him, stick with us because it's a great story and he gets his ass kicked over <laughs> and over and over. And you can enjoy that. The next show we're doing is Gas Pipe. How's that script coming? Um, I actually started working on it today. You did? I thought Zach had three pages like weeks ago. Uh, they're gone. He lost them. 
<laughs> and so I've taken over. You know, you're aware Zach has a job now, a real job, and so that's taking up more of his time. And well, it's been six weeks. So works- what are your hours, Zach? I'm curious. A uh, hundred a week. Hundred hours a week. Today was mostly researching. Anyway, I'm looking for big things and quick. Because I, I don't want to wait another six weeks for a show. Okay, so I'm your host, Bill Crooks. Still a nice guy. Still nothing to worry about. To my right is the underzealous Zach the Zip Griffith. How we doing? How we doing? How we doing? Moving at the speed of turtle. But picking up the slack, we have my sister and uh, favorite co-host right now, my favorite, Anne-Marie Giuliano. That would be the only time I've been your favorite. You just got bumped up. And pulling up the rear in last place, we have Joshua the Intern. Hello. We're starting the show. Bill Stacks, buckle up. It's a Wildwood. Let's get started. William Robert Pascarelli III is born in Bristol, Connecticut in May of 1979 to Samantha Aline Lambert Tuttle Salt and Billy River Bill Pascarelli. Samantha is only 19 at the time, and River Bill is unequal to the challenge of supporting a family. Shortly after William Robert is brought home, River Bill abandons his obligations, leaving Samantha to provide for young William and his older brother Derek. He will not be seen again for many years. Around 1981, Samantha married a man that we'll call Mr. Connecticut, and a couple of years later gave birth to a daughter named Kimberly. My mother's husband, she married Mr. Connecticut in the early 80s, and he beat the shit out of me pretty bad. He broke my arm when I was an infant. I think I was crying or something and it pissed him off. So he like beat the shit out of me to shut me up and he, he hurt me and they bring me to the hospital. Back then it wasn't like it is now and nothing happened. He used to beat the shit out of me all the time, bro. I was the stepson. So my brother was the stepson. My sister was the real kid. So we didn't matter to him. And that's how I grew up. I can't blame people because they got their own issues, what they deal with, why they do the things they do. You need to understand the things that other people deal with to understand the things that you go through. Bill is an interesting character because he's got people in his life that are freaking horrible to him. And some he kind of names out and says, even like, if you're listening to FU, you know, there's other people that he wants to protect. And Mr. Connecticut, he calls him that because he was Mr. Connecticut. This guy's a bodybuilder and an abusive stepfather to him, but he doesn't want to call him out or draw unnecessary attention to him more than he has to, to tell his story. And uh, there's a few people that he protects like that. So, you know, you just got to kind of work around that. Even at his young age, Bill is acutely aware of his family's poor economic situation. Yeah, poor. We're poor. There's not enough rooms. We're sleeping at my cousin's house on the kitchen floor. With blankets, with uh, stoves open, the heat's on the stove to heat the house. I remember uh, I was a little baby. I would walk around and have my stomach out, like sticking out my shirt. And I remember I pushed my stomach against the hot stove. It burned my stomach really bad. I had to go to the hospital, you know, they scraped off the skin and all that shit. It was pretty bad, man. We would get Section 8 government cheese, big blocks of cheese and shit like powdered milk and... Why well, would go to school with tickets? You know, we were poor, man. We didn't have money. It was bad. <laughs> it was bad, bro. But it, it, it is what it is, you know? At some point around four years of age, things get so bad that Bill and his brother have to be temporarily moved into foster care. 
my mother couldn't handle us and she put us into a foster home for a while. So I think that had an effect on me and my brother. The constant violence with my stepfather, I know that had a definite effect on the way I acted and the way I acted towards authority. His education began at the O'Connell School on Park Street in Bristol, Connecticut. It's a diverse group of children, everyone from the well-mannered privileged class to the street-tough lower class, young William being of the latter. We used to walk to school in first grade. Me and my cousin were in the same class. We crossed a street, a major street. It was about a mile away. We walked there every day. The first day of school, I remember this. Me and my cousin were raising hell. One of the kids was like a preppy kid, and they were, they were having this school play thing, like um, Winnie the Pooh. So I wanted to be Winnie the Pooh, and my cousin wanted to be Christopher Robbins. This kid, he got the part in the play. Me and my cousin Randy were mad that he got the part. So we were at recess, and I grabbed the kid, and I held his arms like this, and my cousin was punching him. So we beat him up, and he couldn't play the part in the play. So we ended up getting the part in the play. <laughs> what kind of school lets you beat up the kids and then take their roles? <laughs> That's like me at my job. I'm like, I don't condone what you do, but I do need the help now because of what you did. So that's kind of what the school did. You know what I mean? Pretty much. As often happens in this type of story, it isn't long before Bill finds himself at odds with the school authorities. So me and my cousin raise hell in first grade. I end up getting stayed back. They, they keep me back a grade. They let my cousin go forward. They keep me back. So I'm pretty bad in school. I'm doing bad things. You know, I'm back talking to the teacher. I'm using vulgar language. I'm, I'm doing things like that. So I caused havoc in school. Second grade, his name was Mr. Hudon. He was the principal in O'Connell School. I was causing havoc, saying fuck you and all this shit, right? So. The principal comes down, the teacher cannot deal with me. Principal comes down, grabs me by the ear, and he drags me to the office. So, they call my mom as they're dealing with me. So there's a big melee going on. I get to the principal's office, and he comes in, he closes the door, he goes to rip my pants down, and put me over his lap to whoop my ass with a belt. My mother busts in the door, right in the principal's office. What are you trying to touch my son, blah, blah, blah. And she grabbed me from school, took me out, and, and, and I didn't go back to that school. So we moved. From that point, I went over to Southside School, which is on Wilkins Street in Bristol, Connecticut. So now, it's worse, bad. It's really bad. There's kids like me in this school. With a new school comes a new neighborhood. When it comes to fresh starts, hope springs eternal, or at least for a few hours. First day we're in the projects, we're moving our stuff into the new house, right? And a van pulls up. Cops jump out with SWAT team gear, rifles. Get on the ground, get on the ground. We're like, oh shit. The whole family gets down. They're like, get, get in the house, go take cover. And this is our first day there. Some guy has a gun and he's like threatening to shoot people. So there's cops running through the project looking for this guy. And they're telling us to get on the ground, go in the house. So that was the first experience in the project. And it would be crazy, crazy things happening there constantly. Just to clear in, his dad works construction. 
Yes. He does have a job and he's saving money and he's actually taking these kids to work and they're picking up nails, shit like that. And they're saving up to get a house and get up. They have this dream. He's not like some guy that's sitting around drinking, beating the kids. You know, he goes to work and comes home and then beats kids. The plan may be to escape the projects, but as William turns 10 years old, it is this neighborhood that will serve as the violent backdrop of his childhood. I'm causing havoc at this time, so now I'm about 10 years old. I'm hanging out with the kids in the projects. I'm running around. There's another notorious housing project right next door to this project. It's called Union Street. They called it The Hill. And there was a gang there called the Hilltop Hustlers. And those kids were all the older brothers of the kids I was going to school with. In school, the kids used to pick on me and shit. One day, I was in the mall with my skateboard and I was hanging out with a girl. So I'm sitting down with the skateboard. Kid comes up to me, punches me in the face. They take my skateboard, they break it in half. They tell me, if we ever see you skateboarding again, we're gonna kill you. So I'm scared, I'm a white kid. And these kids are all mixed races. They're Puerto Rican, there's some black kids there, there's Dominicans, they're all mixed races. There's no white boys, I'm the only white boy. The Hilltop is all nationalities, mainly Puerto Rican and black. Now, the other projects that I lived in was a lot of white people, but it was lower class white people, meaning they didn't have a lot of money. Um, they were just struggling, like Section 8 type thing. There was there was mixed races in that project too, but it was labeled the white projects. The name of the projects is Dutton Heights. 10 years old, I go up to the school by myself and I'm playing, just chilling. I have a book of matches in my pocket. I'm over by the school, I see a bunch of papers in the dumpster. I'm like, F it. I take the matches, I flick the match in the dumpster. The fire starts. It gets really big, man. I'm like, holy shit. So I start walking home. I cross the main road and I see one of my friends from school and I go to him. I'm like, yo, you see that shit, yo? I said, I did that. Right there, I, I learned, don't tell people nothing. I went home. That kid went to the fire department and told them what I did. So they showed up at my house and that was my first interaction with the police and it wouldn't be my last. I got suspended from school and they had me doing work at the school, cleaning and picking up rocks in the field, things like that. So my punishment at home was, you're grounded for a year in your room. I didn't give a shit, I didn't care. I was gonna do whatever I wanted. It's also the first time in Bill's life when he discovers his first real passion. So 1989. I heard my first rap song called Roxanne Chante, right? I was like, oh my God, I was blown away by this music. What is this music? This is like my life. They're saying my life on this music. And I'm only 10 years old at the time. So I'm relating with this music. I have a deep passion for this. So I started saying, I can do what they do. I, I was saying that to myself, I know I can do it. So I started studying people's rhymes when I was young. So I would listen to tapes over and over and over again until I memorized every single word. I would read the covers of the, of the cassettes. I would know everybody, the producers, the person that did the graphics. I would learn everything on the tapes. And I'm like, I'm gonna be this guy one day. This is gonna be me one day. 
I always thought that that was going to be the case. But life brings you in different directions, and I'm getting there in a different way. So I'm rhyming at this time. I'm starting to write rhymes, right? I'm in my room rapping. Boom, 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 boom. And my stepfather busts in the door. Why are you rapping this shit? And I'm like, this isn't whatever you said shit. This is my shit. That's the way I was thinking when I was a kid. I don't know color. I don't know the difference between black, white, good, bad. I didn't have a dad to tell me, you got to act this way, son. Do this. Pee like this. You know, I didn't have a dad to do that. I had a guy that beat the shit out of me when I was bad. I had a guy that would drink beers and act like a asshole. I used to sneak out of the house out of the basement window. I wait for my parents to go to sleep and I would leave. So I met this kid, his name was Steve. And me and Steve used to hang out every day. He used to babysit a lot of kids, younger kids, so he would make money. So one time, Steve comes at me and he goes, hey Bill, come over to my house, man. I go to Steve's house. Steve goes, look what I got from the house that where I was babysitting. It was a chrome semi-automatic pearl grip pistol. It was a 25. He has a box of shells and the gun. And I want that gun. So I go, Steve, I'll give you the $25 my mom gave me for the pistol. $25 was a lot of money to a kid like me at 12. That was a lot of money. That was like $1,000. So I buy the pistol off him. I bring it home. I cut a hole in my wall. And then I put cardboard inside there. And I put the gun in there. Then I put a picture over it. So I'm like, I'm gonna keep it in there. If I ever need it, I'll go there and get it. That's how I was thinking back then. So the kids at school, they were getting their older brothers to like threaten me and stuff. So I'm like, I'm gonna shoot these kids and I'm gonna make this stop. I go to school one day, I don't bring the pistol. That's one thing I never did. I, I didn't walk around with the gun. I didn't carry it to school. I left it there in its spot. Just in case I needed it, I would run back and get it and I would do whatever I gotta do. I'm in school one day, I'm at my locker. We're going through sex education class. So this kid, he standing there at the locker next to mine and he goes, my dad's teaching me about sex. And I go, who, you and your dad? And he sucker punched me in the face. He's Puerto Rican and he's from the other projects from the hilltop now he's a major player in this project his brother is a big wig in the project they're high-ranking gang members all of these kids that go to school are all gang members their brothers are all gang members Latin Kings 20 love pump nation Nietas, serious gang members and they had rank they were in the newspaper there was murders they were involved in all kinds of things like that so I don't do nothing back to him right at the moment, right? We step back in the class, in the line. We go back in the classroom. We all sit down. Now he leans his chair back. I'm looking around and I get up. I walk over to him and I kicked his chair. And he slipped back. He busted his head on the desk and I gashed his head open, right? Blood everywhere. He had a brand new white socks jersey on with the pants blood covered it he had a red socks jersey on after this day i end up getting suspended for that and i'm scared at this point i'm like these kids are gonna kill me after doing that shit 
I used to rig up alarm systems onto my locker and everything so I would know if anyone's going in my shit. I was a real tech-savvy, smart, innovative kid. I was always thinking. I was always thinking what's next. In crazy situations, I would calm down and I would take control of it. That's how I operate. I operate like that to this day. So that kid that I cracked his head open, he called his older brothers. They all showed up at the school. These are high-ranking gang members. I'm like 13 years old at this point, maybe 12. So I walk outside the door and and they beat the they, they beat me pretty good. They beat me bad. So I pick myself up, I go home. From there, I gotta go back to school and deal with these kids. So now I'm going back to school and I'm fighting them every day. I'm getting suspended. I'm getting kicked out of school every single day, every day. I got to walk to school. Sometimes these kids are coming to my projects. We're fighting. I'm fighting other kids in the projects. One kid, he was like this much taller than me. He was like five years older than me. And I'm scrapping every day with people. And he comes outside. He had a problem with me. What's popping? Let's handle that problem. So we start fighting. And boom, I catch him in the nose. He drops to his knees and I start catching him. Boom, boom, boom. Blood everywhere. His dad runs outside and grabs me. And I'm a, I'm a kid. I'm a little kid. Grabs me. Why don't you pick on someone your own size? So all the kids there, my older brother and all these kids are laughing at the guy who grabbed me. And he's ready to beat me up because I f***ed his son up bad. So now I'm starting to learn how to fight. I'm starting to learn, like, don't back down, throw your shit in. If, if things go down, you got to throw hands. So I would do that. Any chance I got, I would throw hands. And uh, I didn't care how big you were. I would never run from a fight, never ran, never will. There's been times that there's been a lot of people, and um, I was in situations where they maybe pulled weapons out on me, or um, they were getting the advantage of me. I had to get the f*** out of there. But... Sometimes you got to do that. It's all fair in love and war. So at this point, I'm like, I'm going to start fighting these kids back. But it's a big gang, and I know that. I know that these younger kids have older brothers. I know that they're in gang. I'm starting to learn things. I'm starting to hang around the projects. I'm starting to really take shape and notice things. So 1993, I get my first tattoo. I go to this girl's house inside the projects where I live. I'm listening to that song, Souls of Mischief. This is how we chill from 93 until, 93 to infinity. I'm listening to that song and Grave Diggers tape just came out. And we're listening to it and I'm like, I want a tattoo. And she's giving Indian ink tattoos with the needle. And she's like, I'll give you one. I said, I want the Souls of Mischief logo that's on their tape. So I got that logo on my ankle. My first tattoo ever. As if the childhood of abuse and the bullying from ethnic gangs weren't enough, Bill is about to experience the most traumatizing event of his young life. The projects was pretty brutal to live. So one time we're sitting there and we're hanging out smoking weed and these kids are bigger than me. And they were really my brother's friends. My brother was a little bit older than me. So we're sitting there in the kitchen smoking weed and we skipped school. And they had a magic eight ball, right? You know what those are, the magic eight ball? So they go, should we give Bill a pink belly? And they flipped the eight ball. 
And before they could flip the eight ball and see what it says, pew, I take off. I'm out of here, bro. I'm not waiting to see what the f this shit says. I'm getting the f out of here now. So I take off. I'm running. I hear him say, yes, from the house. I'm running, running. I'm going to make it home. These are my friends, right? I'm running, running, running. I'm almost at my house. I'm running. Boom, they grab me. They get me. One of them grabs me, pulls me down, right? They all, I'm talking like, this is like five, six people, maybe more. They hold me down. They rip my shirt up. And they take turns slapping my stomach like this. And this is no kid pink belly. This is assault. So this happened for a long time. They beat the f out of me bad. It was torture. This was one of the worst experiences I've ever had in my life. It shook me to the core. I've been beaten up by people. I've been pistol whipped. I've been stabbed. And nothing terrorized compares to this incident. It's like a wolf pack mentality, meaning one grabs you, the other ones grab you. They start getting like excited about killing you. So I think that's what happened with these kids. They were like getting excited about doing this, this violence to me that they were like feeding off each other and they were like, fuck it, let's do it. More, more, more. So this is what made me despise these people. By the time they're done, my stomach is bleeding. I have pictures. I'm a kid. You can see I got kid clothes on. And I'm holding my shirt up like this. You can see blood and handprints all over my stomach. So now, my mother's like, I want all of them arrested. I'm like, I don't want any of them arrested. I just want to do my own thing. I got the pistol still, remember? So, I'm going to kill everybody. That's the plan. So, I'm young at this point. I'm not even in middle school when the assault happens. I'm in elementary school. You know, I hold a resentment towards that assault. You know, time goes by. I'm not like I'm gonna kill them right away. I'm, I'm gonna get them one at a time. I end up catching a lot of them. And I still got a couple to go, but I'll get to that. So, uh, and I'm not trying to be a tough guy, man. I've been through the ringer. It's just, you know, I'm not gonna let anyone take advantage of me. And I'm definitely not gonna cower down to no man, never. I bleed the same way everyone else does. And I take my lumps, man, and I, I'll, I'll keep going. I don't care. <laughs> Something I feel like I need to clarify on that clip, that was not a confession to a multi-murder. It kind of came off like that. Conversationally, it didn't. When he says he caught up to him later, he physically assaulted him perhaps, but absolutely nobody died. I don't want that to be misconstrued. And the way I edited it, I couldn't find the words to make it more clear. So there's that. I get to middle school. I gravitate towards this girl. Her name's Nora Salgado. She's a good friend of mine. We're talking every day. Her locker's right next to mine. I'm starting to work for the people in the projects. I don't care about school anymore. I'm not doing any work. I don't even give a shit. I'm not just going in class to sit around, talk to people, and look at girls. And that's what I did. I start going to the other projects for the gang members that lived in my projects. And... I'm gravitating towards the gang members that don't like the people in the other project because I don't like them people. So I'm going against them. I get graduated to seventh grade. I go to the class. I don't like it there. I'm like, this. I start being a bully. I start treating people bad. What the kids did to me, I'm doing to the weaker kids. I'm ashamed to say it now, 
but that's what I did. I can just change the future and not dwell on the past. I'm picking on kids. All of a sudden, this kid shows up. He's a big kid. I'm like, who the f*** is this clown in my shit? This is my town. I'm picking on him. I'm like slapping him in the back of the head and shit. I'm throwing shit at him like, yo, telling other people what to do. F*** with this kid. He's a punk. He's not from around here. He needs to go back where he came from. I was bad. I was mean, man. So I go back home. And I'm just hanging out in the corner with my friends. And a car pulls up, Camry, with a lady in it. She jumps out of the car. She runs right at me and slaps me right in the face. And I'm like, what the f***? She starts slapping me. Bam! 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 I'm trying to stop her. Like, ah! Because I'm a, I'm a kid. I don't know hit women. I don't know nothing. She's f***ing me up. She's slapping me. Don't touch my brother. You put your hands on my brother. Don't ever touch him. This is Jessie. I love her now. She's like a sister to me. The next day, my mother gives me a plastic tray of cookies to bring to school for the class. So I walk in school with the cookies and I see John there and I feel bad. So I say, yo, you want to go with me to 7-Eleven and steal some candy, bro? He's like, yeah. I go after that. We'll go smoke a joint under the bridge and we'll eat these cookies. He's like, all right. So we went, stole a bunch of candy from 7-Eleven, stuffed it in the book bags. I'm talking cleaned them out. Book bags full of candy. Smoked the joint under the bridge. We ate all the cookies for the class. I, I broke an empty tray to school. I'm drinking and smoking weed at this point. There's a school dance. So I'm like, I'm gonna go to this school dance. I buy a tab of acid, a 40 of Crazy Horse, and we got a joint of weed. So I'm drinking, I take the acid, I'm walking with all my friends, and all my friends are bigger, mixed race kids, but they're older than me, they're bigger than me, and they know I'm about my business, so they want to be around me. They point, I go, that's what they know, and they liked it, and they would be like, that's my boy right there, and I like that. I, I wanted to be accepted, and they gave me acceptance, so I ran with them. At this point, I'm starting to cause havoc more. I'm flicking the light switch on one day, right? On and off, on and off, on and off in the hallway. A janitor comes and goes, stop playing with the light, kid. I go, fuck you. You ever come near me, I'll kill you. They call the police. They have me arrested. So now this is my second interaction with the police. I get arrested for making terroristic threats. So they put me on like a probation for that. That night comes with the dance. I take that acid and I start drinking. I show up at the dance. I try to get in the dance. They deny me at the door. They say, you ain't coming in here. They can tell I'm drinking. I sit down on the ground and I see these kids' faces that I hate, that were picking on me. I see their faces in the concrete. I start punching the concrete. And the cops come. They're at the door. They don't mess with me, but they grab me, right? They grab me. They hold me right when the dance is getting released. So everybody's coming out of the dance and the cops have me being paraded in front of the dance in handcuffs. So my mother shows up. My mother shows up and she grabs me. She slaps me and the cop goes, man, don't do it here. Wait till you get home. Listen, man, when I was born, you could smoke cigarettes in the hospital. You can drink alcohol in the hospital. You can do whatever you want. 
It was a no holds bar back then. There was no such thing as child abuse. There was no such thing as any of that shit. You got what you got and you got up and that's what you got. So my cousin sleeps over my house one day. I'm about 12 years old. We sneak out the basement door. We bring the pistol with us. We load it with shells. We're running around the town. Every time we see a car, we're hiding in the bushes, hiding behind cars. We're gonna go shoot this gun, right? So we're running. We go to the railroad tracks. It's in the middle of Bristol, downtown Bristol. And it's in back of the center mall. So we're licking shots off. In back of the center mall, and we hear trains coming. We're like, oh shit, let's put this carriage on the railroad tracks. So he helps me, and we put it on the railroad tracks. And I stand over in the other bushes, and I'm gonna shoot at the train when it's going by. So this is a steel mill train. So it's not no people on it. Cargo train with coal in it and shit like that. The train starts coming. We're shooting the train, boop, boop. We're walking in sparks and shit. It's nighttime. So they hit the cart, they hit the shopping cart. Boom, it derails the train. Derails the whole train. And back in the center mall, huge pileup. Me and my cousin, boom, take off. And we take off out of there. I don't know what happened. We run down the railroad tracks. We get to 7-Eleven on Riverside Ave in Bristol. And there's a Napa there. And the Napa is a big brick building. And it's one floor. There's a river that runs underneath Napa. And it goes underneath all of Bristol. I used to explore these when I was a kid. So I know all about them. I know all about the underground tunnels in Bristol. I know every back alley. I know all about this town. So me and my cousin are like, we're going to go in the tunnels and get away from the cops. But we got the gun on us. A cop pulls up, sees us, shines the light. And I'm like, oh shit, can hide behind this fence. So we run behind this fence and we're holding on to this fence and we're on a ledge. It's like a 25 foot drop to a river. It's not deep water, it's shallow water. And there's rocks protruding out of the water. My cousin's holding the gun at this point. I tell my cousin, yo, throw the gun, throw the gun. Cause the cops shining the light on me. And I hear the gun go in the water. So the cop shines a light right on the fence. I could see the beams coming through the fence onto my face, my cousin's face. So I'm like, yo, let's just jump. And he's like, F it. And we just let go and jumped. Splash into the water. We run underneath Napa in the tunnel. We get to the other side and we hide in the bushes, in the weeds. And it's all like, you know, those bamboo things and shit. And they're searching for like good 45 minutes. They can't find us, but they know we're there somewhere. And then the light hits me and it doesn't move. And he goes, get up here. I'm gonna shoot you. If you don't put your hands up, I'm gonna shoot you. So I put my hands up, I get out. I'm like, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. So I get up and I, and I go up. They handcuff me and my cousin. We're little kids at this point. We're not 13, we're like 12. So they call my mom and my stepfather. I'm like, I'm dead, I'm dead, this is it. And uh, he beat the shit out of me that time. The ass whoopings continued until one day. And we'll get to that. Uh, seventh grade, I'm smoking weed, everything. I start becoming cool with my friend John. We're best friends. We go everywhere together. He's my dog. He was originally from California. His name was John Sullivan. He was the same age as me. He moved from San Diego. His father died in an Air Force accident. 
And they sued the army and they won. And they got $10 million to split. So they got $5 million each. He got that money when he turned 18. And he treated it like it was my money too. I don't know why he did that. Maybe because we were good friends. Maybe because he trusted me. We went through a lot of personal things together. We talked about a lot of things. Uh, they let school out for the summer. My friend Nora, she goes, she's hanging out with her friends and, you know, having fun like teenagers do. So one day I work with my stepfather all day, shoveling big dirt piles. I get home. I'm tired. My mother goes, Bill, come here, sit down. I got to tell you something. So I sit down and she goes, um, your friend Nora got killed today. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, your friend's dead and she's not coming back. She got ran over by a car. She was walking with her family. There was her and three of her cousins. They were walking down the street in Bristol. There was an old man driving his mother to work. And he said the sun got in his eyes. He swerved over the lane up on the sidewalk and ran all five of them over. So he told the newspaper... The mother said to him, look, now I'm going to be late for work. Look what you did. And they quoted her saying that. So this shit like resonated in my brain. A lot of them had critical injuries. Nora is the only one that passed away. Her name's Nora Salgado. May she rest in peace. That, that really struck me, man. And that was the first time that I experienced death close. And... I've experienced death plenty of times after that, but that one really affected me bad. I let it turn me into the victim. I went to her funeral, paid my respects. You know, I wrote her a letter. I had one of her shirts, it was a cross color shirt, and I would wear it all the time. I held it close to me. I found out who the guy was who ran her over. I was gonna make it my point to go kill him because he took away my friend, so I'm gonna take his life. That was my thinking. There was a voice in my head saying, go kill him. Make it even. I don't know where it came from. I don't know where this violent streak came from. But I think I was comfortable with violence being hit all the time. Being called a piece of shit. Being told I'll never amount to nothing. I was told this on a daily basis. So I never really thought I would be anything in life. I thought I was a piece of shit. I thought I was going to end up in jail. I thought I'd end up dead. I, I hated life. I used to close my eyes and hope for death when I was young. Five years old. Five-year-old's not supposed to do that. After Nora dies, I start calculating a plan on how to kill this guy. I acquire a rifle. And I find out his address. And I go to this guy's house... And I'm waiting for him to get up in the morning to go to work so I can shoot him with the rifle. So I'm in the bushes and I'm waiting for him to get out of the house. I'm waiting, waiting. And something came over me and said, go home. Don't do this. And I think it was Nora. I think it was her soul coming to me like, I'm okay. Go home. And I think that saved my life that time. So there was many other times that I don't know what happened, divine intervention, I have no clue. But there was times I should be dead, a lot of them. And I'm still here, so every moment is very precious to me. My time is very valuable. 
Things have changed. They progressed. I was into cocaine. I got into ecstasy. I got into every hard drug you could think of by the time I was in seventh grade. I'm talking cocaine, heroin, pills, all that. Long time ago. But I'm smoking weed really heavily at this time. And I start selling pot. If you're an Italian kid in a poor neighborhood, odds are pretty good you're going to land in some kind of criminal outfit. Not surprisingly, Bill finds his outfit in an up-and-coming street gang. I get introduced to these certain kids. Find out they're in an organization called 20 Love. At first, this one kid, his name is Arthur Genovese. His grandfather is in the Genovese family. Now, he's in jail right now for first-degree murder. What he did is he took the gang that he was in up here with me and he brung it down to Florida and he started a chapter down there without permission. I am gravitating towards the streets more. I start getting involved with the gangs and I'm around these guys every day. So I'm like liking what they're doing. I'm seeing the cars, I'm seeing the money, I'm seeing the jewelry and they're taking me around with them and they're showing me parts of the game on what to do, how to act, who to be around how to watch out for police. And this is all happening while I'm a young kid. So I don't know any better than to not look up to these people. These are my friends. So I figured they have the best interest for me. I want to be accepted. So I'm willing to do anything to be with these guys. So I met this kid. His name's Damon. He became the vice president of 20 Love. He's my really good friend. I'm still friends with him to this day. And uh, he offered me to come in. So you got to be proposed. It's the same thing as the mob. You have to have somebody that places you in this position. You can't just go up and say, I want to be in your gang. It doesn't work like that. If you're not official, they don't take you. They won't f*** with you. They won't just take a little kid and say, I want you in my gang. It doesn't work like that. People think it does, but it doesn't. You have to prove yourself so that they can know your worth, so they know what they're getting out of you. So I was proving myself as much as I could so that they knew that I was about my shit. So they wanted me with them. Damon gives me to this other gang member named Tretch. So Tretch is a high-ranking gang member out of Hartford. He's my shot caller. He's the one that proposes me for membership. So I'm with him for about maybe a year, maybe a little less. I've been through all kinds of shit with him. And so on my initiation day, I don't know it's coming. We're walking down the street as a group. Now at this point, we're into stealing cars. We're into doing robberies. We're into stealing from stores. Like if someone takes a break, we're going to run in there, grab the money out the register and run out. Someone goes to get gas at the gas station, we're going to jump in your car and take off. We would do things like that. So it's a constant cycle of bad things happening. So my initiation... Stretch tells me, I want you to go and punch that dude in the face. And I'm like, are you f***ing crazy, bro? This guy looked like Hulk Hogan. And he wants me to go punch him in the face. I'm like, that's impossible, bro. He's going to kill me. So now I got to figure a way to punch this guy, to make him happy, and get away from this guy without getting killed. So I'm like, man. I walk up. I'm acting like nothing's happening. And I punched him. And I wasn't no powerhouse or nothing. He fucking grabbed me. And his friends weren't far behind. And they fucked me up, man, pretty good. And these guys left me for dead. So I should have known right there. I should have had an inkling. Like, these guys left me there. Who's to say they won't if something else happens? 
but I always had my friend John by my side. So it didn't matter if the guys in the gang did me dirty or they weren't with me on, on something that I was doing. I had my boy John with me. 100% could always count on him. We start hanging out in this apartment. It's this kid named Joe's apartment. So Joe is in the gang. He's already a member. He has this apartment in this brick building on Main Street in Bristol, Connecticut. It's these little high rises, like four story building. And there's three of them. So there's one way in, one way out. So we had this place on lock. People could not go in or out without us being privy to what's going on. And Latin Kings lived in the first building. They were our enemy. Our other enemies were Pump Nation, Brotherhood. The Los Alitos were cousins to us. They had a handshake, they had bylaws, they had colors, they had all of that. There's some things I won't talk about, there's a lot of things I will talk about. But we get into this apartment. We're looking out the window, see what's going on, because the guy just got done f***ing me up. So the police are going to be coming soon. The guy Joe is outside, and the cops end up showing up, and they arrest Joe. He's the guy who owns the apartment. They take Joe away in handcuffs. He had a warrant for something. We treat the apartment like Joe's gone, this is ours. We take all Joe's shit and throw it in the garbage. I set up a bed, I set up my room, I take his room over. And there's three other rooms in this apartment. So we got all rooms unlocked. Everyone has a room. We got people in the living room. It's loaded with people. It's just a gang house, it's a trap house. They're selling drugs out of there, we're doing everything. So we take over the apartment and they say, Bill, come here. I go into the back room and it's empty. There's no furniture in there. It's a pretty big room. And there's five guys in there. And some of these guys are high ranking from Hartford. And I'm like, why are these guys here? What the f is going on? So they go, Bill, you're up. It's your turn. Today's your day, bro. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was so happy that I was getting this, that it, nothing else mattered to me. This was my birthday. I made it. They say, are you sure you want to do this? I say, yes. They say, if we need you and your own families fucking need you, who are you going to come to first? I said, I'll come to you first. So I agreed to all this. I signed the paperwork. So they say, you got to get uh, bounced in. It's called getting jumped in. I'm like, okay, I'm with it. So they say, you got to fight three people. And we'll tag 20 seconds onto the clock. If you can handle yourself, you pass the test, you'll be in. 20 seconds. Three people is a long time bro so it seems like 20 minutes trust me fight three people for 20 seconds and see how it feels pretty bad because you're trying to fight one and you got another two you up you get two of them you got one snake in you so you're getting knocked from every angle they're three fighters like these guys are already in the gang and once you say i want to join and you're in there's no getting out of this this is to death you sign a paper saying you will die before you get out. So I signed the paper. I did not expect to live past 18 years old. I expected to die. I, that was the plan. I didn't care. And that was what it was. I go in there. I handle my business. I get the shit. They put the beads on my neck. I'm happy. We're jumping around. We're hugging. I'm bleeding. I'm beat up. But we're, we're friends now. Now we're friends. Now we're in it. 
let's get this, let's do it, let's make money, let's fucking be the powerhouses that everyone thinks we are. By this time, we're starting to be involved with guns, uh, smuggling firearms and trafficking guns and getting into the drugs. One of my friends hits me up. His name's Steve. He's dead now. God rests his soul. He calls me and he goes, Bill, I want to show you something that you need to know. You need to learn this. Come to my house. So I show up to his house. He lived in Huntington Woods at the time in Bristol. That's where they found the car that Aaron Hernandez used in the murder of Odin Lloyd. I show up at his house. He goes in. He goes, you know what this is, Bill? I'm like, nah, I don't. He goes, it's a scale. And this is a bag of cocaine. So I'm going to show you how to make crack. And I'm going to show you how to weigh out cocaine so that you can make some money. I'm like, man, this is the best day of my life. I'm going to get rich. This is it. So he teaches me how to weigh out points of cocaine. He teaches me how to cook crack. He teaches me how to bag everything how to sell it, how to deal with people. He teaches me everything. His younger brother was depressed about a female and he hung himself. God rest his soul. I'm very thankful for Steve, but over the years we branched off. He went in a different direction. He went around with the people I didn't like. I don't know if he joined the gang, but I know he was heavily involved with the people I did not like. So I backed away from Steve. At this point, I'm in it. They go, let's go do a score. We're driving down the street in one of my buddy's car. His name Dan, Crooked Eye. You know who you are if you're out there. Dan was about his business. He was another white boy that was in the thing. At first, he was just an associate. And then he became down. And then he disappeared. I don't know what happened to Dan. I might know, but I might not. So we, we see a liquor truck. And we see a guy pulling a cart out of the liquor truck. And he's bringing it into the package store. I go, there's the score. We pull up. My buddy jumps in the truck. And he drives the truck away. Whole fucking truck. The whole truck. So we bring it up. I had this parking lot. I'd steal cars at a church. And I would park them at this uh, commuter parking lot. That was my parking lot. It was in the car. It was hidden. I would do certain things to the cars. So I would know if the cops were there or if they were waiting for me. I would just look at the car and I would know. There's certain things you do. You put the visors down. You do this and that. And you know if someone shit. You could tell from far. I was always doing things like that. A little step ahead. Trying to be a step ahead. I've committed so many crimes that I should be still in prison for it. Honestly. But I'm about redemption and I changed my life, man. And I don't belong in prison anymore. So... We steal the truck. I end up drinking a whole bottle of Zambuca that night. A liter. And that was the worst mistake. I was throwing up out of the second story window. I was sick for two days. One time, me, that guy Crooked Eye, and my friend John, we have a problem with some Pump Nation guys up in the other projects. Crooked Eye's like, yo, let's go handle this business, man. So I'm like trying to figure out what we're gonna do, what's the plan. How are we going to go in there? How are we going to hit them? So we're like, fuck it, man. Let's just go. We'll drive by there, see what's going on, and we'll figure it out. We're driving, and I'm in the passenger seat. We're coming up on the project, and all of a sudden, the gun is laid over my lap, and he pulls the trigger. <laughs> right in front of me. I had no clue he was going to do this. Right out the window at these guys. It was a drive-by shoot. After the gun goes off, take off. We're flying down the road, and I think I licked off shots outside. 
Boop, boop, boop. I wasn't trying to hit nobody. We were just, you know, trying to make a statement, basically. Like, don't with us, bro. We're here. We get to the end of the street. We're driving down the hill. We come around this corner, and we start going down a hill, and smoke starts filling the car. And we're all like, what the hell is going on? We're, like, trying to figure out where the smoke's coming from, and it's pouring out the back, uh, out of the trunk, like it's, but it's filling up the car. And it's uh, a two-door Mercury Cougar. When they wired up the amp, they wired it wrong. So when we were going, it, it like fried the amp and the radio and everything. And so the smoke was filled in the car. We couldn't even drive anymore. He had to pull over. We we're all getting out of the car. We just got done shooting up the street. So I'm thinking that these people are coming down to kill us. And uh, we're trying to air out the car and shit. And it was just insane. The level of anxiety was like through the roof. And uh, we ended up jumping back in the car and going. Twenty Love. We cover mostly mafia. I don't think a lot of people are going to know what Twenty Love is, so I just want to describe it real quick. First of all, these are gangs, and they're set up not unlike the Gambinos and the Lucchese and these these families. There's a lot of similarities. There's some critical differences too. Sometimes they're less organized and more chaotic, and in other ways they're more corporate and administrative than typical mafia family would be. I would compare them closer to like a motorcycle club, which I've studied a little bit of because of the radio show and having to do stories about that. Right. Like that. They're called 20 Love. It's a spinoff of the 1970s Hartford-based gang, the Magnificent 20s. So that's where the 20 came from. The gender makeup, they're primary male. The racial makeup, interestingly, they're African-Americans. And this started in prison, this gang. It appears to be semi-organized with a council that consists of a chairman and five co-chairmen. Captains and sergeant of arms, bylaws consist of 20 rules and regulations. And these things are written down. That's the part that kind of threw me at first. And you'll hear that when he describes joining the gang. And you'll think like, well, that sounds like BS. No, it's real. And the Hells Angels and things, like the outlaws, the pagans, very similar. Did you know you could go to the Pagans website and buy merch? Wow. Yeah, you can buy merch and stuff. Like you can get a Pagans jacket. It's an organization. There's a president, a president who's not really a boss, like you would think in a motorcycle gang. He's a president of like an organization that makes money. And sure, there's like a one percenters, like a Pagans is a one percenter where they do illegal activities, but that's not the sole source of their income. It's a lot more corporately structured than, than you would think. You know, it's kind of kind of interesting. So the gang colors of 20 Love are black and green. They have an emblem and a handshake. It's a closed fist banged together, then index and middle finger placed over the heart like a peace sign, signifying the 20 to the heart, meaning love, right? Okay. They have an alliance with the Elm City Boys and Los Salidos, two other gangs. Now their rivals are the Latin Kings, the Natata, the nation and the brotherhood. Criminal activities, they're into drugs, assaults, intimidation, extortion, and murder. 20 Love originated in the correction system, a spinoff of a Hartford-based gang called the Magnificent 20s. The Magnificent 20s existed in the late 60s and early 70s. Its original members are now almost non-existent. As a result, younger members are taking positions of leadership and incidents of violence have been growing at a rapid pace. It's believed that the reason the Magnificent 20s formed was as a means of protection within the Hartford streets. But as the membership grew, their priorities changed, along with the increase in violence and type of crimes. Very, very typical in gangs and motorcycle clubs, the origins. All entrance to the family is based on a four to two vote or vice versa. 
The chairman's final approval is required for membership, as well as any decisions for the family. The 20 Love has a reputation for violence to include assaults on inmates for refusing membership or disrespecting their gang. Incidents of assaults and intimidation toward the white inmates have been reported, and documented reports on instrumenting food strikes and work stoppage within the facilities. Now, the interesting thing is, it's an African-American gang. But at some point, they do decide to diversify and build up their numbers. And that's how Stax ends up in, and a lot of other guys. Now that Bill is a gang member, he strives to meet and exceed expectations. When a person willingly joins a gang, they know the risk involved. They anticipate the violence that is sure to come their way. It's hard to prepare yourself, however, when the violence finds the innocence. I could show you this whole street. I could bring you in the project. They redeveloped it. It looks different a little bit, but it's not that different. It still looks the same, but it's just prettier. There's like flowers and shit now. Spray paint still on the back walls and shit. They're like three stories and they're long brick buildings, long brick rows. And then there's a courtyard in the middle. Uh, my grandmother and grandfather used to be the maintenance man at this place. My grandmother would collect the rent. My grandfather would mow the lawns. So one day, my grandmother's tending to her, her things that she has to do there. So she finds a kilo of cocaine stuffed inside the side. You know where they pull the two slats for uh, to pick up the dumpster? Then they got to dump it. Inside the slat, she found a kilo of cocaine stuffed in there. So that was their drug spot. This project in the 80s and 90s was the most popping project out here. So there was drug addicts everywhere. There was shootings. There was murders. People were getting f***ed up every day. They were getting high every day. There was people walking around constantly looking for drugs. It was constantly like that. It was a never-ending cycle. It was vicious, man. My grandma finds a kilo. So she calls the police. She tells the police, I want a receipt for this kilo of cocaine before I give it to you. And they're like, a receipt? for a kilo of cocaine she goes I don't trust you and I think you're gonna take it and sell it to the drug dealers she's like I want a receipt so they gave her a receipt for a kilo of cocaine so a couple days later my grandfather's mowing the lawn and he gets shot in the back so that's when shit starts getting real right they shoot my grandfather he doesn't die but he's shot they knew how violent it was getting in the streets of Bristol. In the 90s, there was newspaper articles every day about the gangs out here. One of the initiations they used to do for the Latin Kings is the Latin Kings used to hide underneath people's cars. And when the person, and I'm talking about civilians, would be going to their car to put the key in the car. And a Latin King would be under the car and slice their Achilles ah! tendon with a razor blade. And that was their initiation. That's how brutal it got. Well, anyone who's heard this show before knows this is our winding down music. We're going to come back with the conclusion of this next time. And I got to say, what we're going to cover in the next episode is going to be some of the very darkest things I've ever covered in this podcast. It's a story that needs to be told, but a lot of things are going to be hard to hear. All right. So what'd you think of that? Awesome. Lots of... Sad. Yeah. All the emotion. Yeah, that's what I was Yeah, it really does. It runs the gamut, man. And uh, it's a guy you thought you knew. 
you know, the thing is, not only is his story got all those elements that make a great story and stuff, if you look at where he is now and the future's ahead of him and he's going nowhere but up. And, you know, when you're doing the podcast business, especially like for us, we don't care because we do other shit. This isn't our this isn't our bread and butter. Right, right. right. These guys need this. This is this has got to make or break or it's got to lead to something else, you know. So they work it 24-7 and I have nothing but mad respect for all of them. And that's all of them, whether or not they're beefing with each other or like us or don't like us they 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 work their asses off every single one of them and they're fighting hard to make it work you know and you got to respect that more power to every one of them but uh hey stacks i think he's got a lot of talent like i said the video skills uh he's branching out into other things he's got a lot of ideas very creative man and uh i like him i talk to him all the time and i suspect we'll be friends for a long time you know and uh, i appreciate him working with us on this you know and the, the, the effort he put in and stuff it's uh just like Gunnar and Ori and those guys that do it, you know, it's not easy. It's a pain in the ass. It takes a lot of time. Like I said, when they do it, if they walk through it with us, they got a friend for life and, and us. So, so we're going to call it a night. Yes. Be safe Everybody have a good there. night. God bless. Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat.